Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be doing another historical gaming episode, which I know I haven't done one of those in a while. Today we're going to be taking a look at some ways you might be able to incorporate your Dungeons & Dragons campaign into the days of the Wild West, or some people like to call it the Old West, the American Frontier, basically it kind of a catch-all term for anything that was west of the Mississippi River. Now, as with any sort of historical gaming efforts, the we have to define what type of time period we are going to be discussing. And in the case of the Wild West, that can be kind of difficult to pin down because there were people exploring the area to the west of the Mississippi as early as the 1500s when the Spanish had started exploring the western coast of the U.S. In the early 1800s, there was a renewed effort to start moving people west and we saw famous expeditions like the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, for purposes of this episode, we're going to be focusing on the Wild West we know from popular culture. So these were the days of cowboys and outlaws. So usually you're looking at a time period from 1865 to 1890s. So not that long after the end of the American Civil War. Also, of course, the nature of the campaign is going to depend heavily on where exactly you're setting it. So a campaign that takes place in some of the Great Plains states going to be quite different from the American Southwest, where it was more uh, desert terrain. And then, of course, when you start getting to the West Coast, where there's a, a greater range of environments, that, of course, is going to throw uh, different factors into the campaign. But for this episode, we're going to try to focus mostly on the deserts and plains, because usually when we think of the Wild West, that's what we're thinking of. Now, of course, the Old West, as portrayed in popular culture, doesn't always match up with reality. There are certain tropes that we usually see in this type of media. So how many of these tropes that you wish to incorporate into your campaign is, of course, up to you. But let's get some of the big ones out of the way, starting with interactions between Native Americans and settlers. Now, no doubt you've seen a few different uh, Native American archetypes in Westerns. One of the more common ones is probably the noble savage. Usually he's pictured as being very stoic, close to nature, and peaceful, but he's willing to fight when necessary. He's supposed to represent mankind's innate goodness before it was corrupted by the evils of civilization. His opposite, another stock character that we see in the Westerns, is the bloodthirsty raider. He is the one who leads a war band against wagon trains, swooping in and indiscriminately killing men, women, and children. Again, these are just stereotypes. 
if you go back to episode 111, my friend James, who is Native American, uh, and I did, we did a episode about running a historical Native American campaign. So you might want to go back and listen to that episode uh, to get a little bit more, you know, get some more ideas because for this particular episode, I'm not going to be focusing as much on the Native American side of things. So that might actually be a good uh, supplement for this episode. Now, one of the things we mentioned there is that Native Americans are a diverse group of people. There are hundreds of different officially recognized Native tribes between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Each had their own set of beliefs. So naturally, the tribes that inhabited the uh, woodlands of the Midwest are going to be different from the ones that inhabited the deserts of the Southwest. And of course, they're going to be different from the tribes that inhabited northern Canada and lived closer to the Arctic Circle. I am not an expert on the Wild West by any stretch of the imagination. I would guess that usually the relationships between Native Americans and settlers varied greatly depending on location and circumstance. Most of the violent conflicts, though, involving Native Americans were due to the U.S. military, often trying to force them off of their lands or trying to subdue various uh, uprisings or unruly tribes. Now, the settlers, though, they actually often traded with Native Americans and would even hire them as guides. Some settlers even took up Native American tools and lifestyles. When I was in a Boy Scout Explorer post back during my college years, we used to go to events called rendezvous. These events were hosted by buckskinner groups. Buckskinners are reenactors who dress in clothing common to pioneers and mountain men. So some of the stuff they, they used was, would probably predate the West by a bit. But anyways, they would often give demonstrations of the skills that were important during this period, as well as engage in marksmanship contests with bows, muzzleloaders, and throwing weapons. Now, rendezvous are actually a lot of fun, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, I highly recommend you check one out if you have the chance. So to get back on track, I want to stress that I am not trying to downplay injustices that were done to Native Americans. While the situation between settlers and natives wasn't a never-ending cycle of violence, it wasn't always peace, love, and rainbows either. Next, let's take a look at one of the main fixtures of the Wild West, the cowboy. Surely this archetype is as American as apple pie, right? Well, actually, the American cowboy owes its existence to Mexicans called vaqueros. These men performed many of the same tasks as cowboys and even helped train Americans in their trade. Also, not all cowboys were white men either. There were black, Hispanic, and Native American cowboys as well. Black cowboys were often freed slaves. They were expected to do some of the more dangerous work of the cowboy, but for some of these men, the life of a cowboy was actually 
preferable to that of life on a plantation. Now, cowboys certainly did not live a very glamorous life. They often worked long hours, the labor was physically demanding, and the pay was not that great. However, it is believed that they did have an unwritten code of conduct that focused on the virtues of self-reliance, honesty, and even chivalry. Oh yes, and the famous cowboy hat, that's largely a myth as well. While many people on the frontier did wear some kind of headgear, the more most common style of hat was actually similar to a bowler hat or a Mexican sombrero. The famous 10-gallon hat or the uh, Stetson hat that we see in the movies and TV shows, those would be too unwieldy and would be more likely to fly off of your head if you were riding on a horse or a stagecoach. Another common myth about the Wild West is that it was, well, wild. Popular culture might have you believe that everyone carried a gun and high noon gunfights were as common as shots of whiskey. In reality, some towns in the Old West had stricter gun control laws than many places in the U.S. have today. Openly carrying a firearm, at the very least, would draw suspicion and maybe a visit from the local sheriff. In some places, both open carry and concealed carry were illegal. Many of the people who moved west did so out of a desire to leave behind the problems they saw in the so-called civilized regions. That included violence. Also, bank robberies were nowhere near as common as popular culture would have you believe. In a 40-year period from 1860 to 1900, there's less than 10 recorded bank robberies. One of the reasons these robberies may have been so uncommon is due to urban planning. Often on these frontier towns, important buildings were often grouped close together, so there was a good chance that the sheriff's office would be right across the street from the bank. So if you did sneak in and tried to use dynamite to blow up a safe, well, then there was a very good chance that you would attract a lot of attention, including that from the local authorities. Now, while I'm going to be focusing mostly on historical gaming for this particular episode, there is a genre called Weird West. So you might want to look into some of those movies, books, or TV shows for inspiration. Usually the Weird West genre incorporates elements of science fiction, steampunk, and sometimes fantasy into this, the, the genre of the Old West or the Wild West. One uh, movie I can think of off the top of my head is Will Smith's movie, Wild Wild West. Now, I only saw part of the movie, but I remember one of the scenes involved a giant robotic spider. So let's take a look at some of the classes from Dungeons & Dragons and how you might incorporate them into a Wild West campaign. Now, as with most of my historical gaming episodes, I'm going to be focusing mostly on 2nd Edition, and as I've said before, that's just because that's the edition I'm most familiar with, 
and the edition of D&D that I have the most material for. So first, the fighter. Now, as with other historical gaming episodes, the fighter is actually a fairly easy character to convert to use in the Wild West. There is a supplement called Mask of the Red Death. I remember paging through one of the books once, and they did actually have a cowboy class, and they were basically your fighters. Because, again, the fighter would, or the cowboy, would have to be a rough-and-tumble type guy capable of handling heavy labor and surviving out in the wilderness. So actually for fighters, dexterity would probably be a bit more useful than strength because as we'll discuss later, a lot of your combat is probably going to be with ranged weapons as opposed to melee weapons. Now while you could certainly use a fighter as a base for a cowboy, you could also have your fighter fulfill a variety of other roles as well including outlaws, lawmen, gunslingers, and soldiers. Now, naturally, there is going to be a temptation to play a gunslinger who duels with other gunslingers. And again, that's going to be up to you as to whether you want to really incorporate a lot of special abilities. Uh, Just because, well, a gunslinger is going to be someone who is just, well, basically better than average with a gun. So, honestly, if you made a fighter and had him specialize in a certain type of firearm, well, there's your gunslinger. Now, some players might think to ask about playing a highly specialized gunslinger. You know, the one who draws his gun, smoothly twirls it around in his fingers, then performs trick shots like shooting off an opponent's hat or shooting his belt so his pants fall down. And there isn't anything wrong with that. But the duels that we see in the movies are highly romanticized. Most gunfights in the Wild West were spontaneous affairs due to some disagreement, and chances are alcohol may have been a factor in a lot of these fights. In reality, the gunfight at, you know, the duel at high noon, very much a Hollywood invention. Usually a gunfight back then would have involved one person drawing a gun, and the other either reacting or diving for cover. And most likely, a person who developed a reputation as a skilled gunslinger would not go around looking for fights. And here's a possible reason why. Remember, medical technology was not as advanced as it was today, so treating a gunshot wound, even one to a non-vital area, could still lead to death by infection. Now, this is a little off-topic, but I promise it's going to be relevant. In 1847, a Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis was trying to figure out why women who went to a certain hospital had a higher rate of dying from something called purpenal fever. I probably did not pronounce that correctly, uh, but some people would often also call it childbirth fever. So this was a type of infection that occurred after a woman had given birth. Ignaz noticed that the ward with the highest death rate often had medical students and new doctors attending most of the births. These men would often perform an autopsy, then go to deliver a baby without washing their hands. 
So Ignaz proposed a radical solution to this problem. He asked the medical students and doctors to wash their hands before going to assist in a birth. Thanks to this change, the rate of deaths after childbirth went down dramatically. Now here's where things get weird. While Ignaz's idea is in common practice today, it actually took a while to catch on. Doctors of his day believed themselves to be gentlemen, and the belief was that a gentleman's hands were always clean. So for years, after Ignaz made his findings public, doctors would still probe around in patients' bodies with unwashed hands and unsterilized tools. This is not to say all doctors ignored this radical idea. Dr. George E. Goodfellow practiced medicine in Tombstone, Arizona during the late 1800s. He actually made it a habit to wash his hands and clean his tools when treating injuries, and he would actually go on to become one of the leading authorities on treating gunshot wounds of his day. Remember George's name because we're going to be coming back to him. So to get back on track, an experienced gunslinger would likely have relied more on his reputation to avoid getting into fights. He would have realized the risks of getting into a gunfight with an equally skilled opponent, and those risks could potentially outweigh any possible reward. It is also possible some of these gunslingers may have exaggerated their reputation for the same reason. One theory I read about is that many gun duels may have actually been the result of younger gunslingers looking to make a reputation for themselves. So they would try to find and challenge a renowned gunman hoping to beat him and gain fame. So that is actually something you could incorporate if you decide to allow players to make a specialized kit or class of a gunslinger. I could definitely see it as being reasonable to give them a reputation score, and this would essentially impact their reactions, and once you get to a certain level, might even produce a fear-type effect. Next, the Ranger, one of my all-time favorite D&D classes. Now, this class, I think, is actually very appropriate for a Wild West campaign. There were a lot of unsettled areas and a lot of wilderness that needed to be explored, so I could see a Ranger acting as a guide or a scout for the military. The second edition Complete Ranger's Handbook has several kits that I think would be appropriate to this setting. The Explorer, the Pathfinder, and the Mountain Man. I could even see a ranger taking the role of a bounty hunter. There were no shortage of bad guys that needed to be brought to justice in those days. Someone has to hunt them down, and the ranger, with his skill in tracking, Wilderness survival and combat would certainly be qualified for this task. I could also see a ranger being a good cowboy because of their skill with dealing with animals. Now, as far as a ranger's magical abilities, probably out of place. Again, if you don't mind incorporating them, uh, I could certainly see a lot letting them use spells that influenced animals. Spells from the plant sphere. Not quite as much. Next, the Paladin. I really wouldn't recommend a Paladin for a Wild West campaign, 
While it is believed that cowboys did practice some sort of chivalristic code, the idea of this highly principled, highly moral, holy warrior with magical powers would be out of place in the Wild West, at least in my opinion. Next, the monk. Now, usually I have a hard time trying to figure out ways to incorporate the monk into a historical campaign. In the Wild West, it could work. I mean, bare-knuckle boxing was a popular form of entertainment around this time. And while I couldn't find anything to say whether boxing matches were common in the Old West, I don't think it would be too horribly out of place. I mean, I could certainly see someone who worked as a prize fighter and a bare-knuckle boxer out east uh, in the more civilized areas on the west co- on the east coast deciding that he had enough of that and then for whatever reason decided to move west clerics now a cleric in this campaign would most likely be a christian missionary or a clergyman who attends a local church i wouldn't enforce the rule about the use of non-edged weapons by clerics I was actually able to find a couple of stories about priests who did carry guns and who knew how to use them, though I would guess this probably was not a common practice. Still, in if we are taking a look at some of the romantic or the romanticized ideas of the Wild West, I do not think it would be inappropriate to allow a cleric to carry a firearm. As far as the spells... Usually, you're going to want to focus on the more subtle spells, things like bless, detect evil, remove curse. Those I could see as being very appropriate. Uh, Now, naturally, healing spells are always very important, though generally, uh, in the second edition supplements where they did talk about historical gaming, usually they discouraged the use of overly dramatic spells. So again, whether you want to allow those entirely up to you. I would not recommend the use of druids, again, because if we look at druids historically, they are pretty much limited to a type of character, type of person that was found in the UK and in Europe. If you did want to allow a player to use a druid, I could see maybe adapting that class to a Native American tribe, and that probably wouldn't be too, too out of place. So I would very much see this as a highly optional class. Well, next we move on to the rogues, the thief and the bard. I could see a thief working as a professional gambler, as that was actually a viable profession back then. And, you know, of course, we've seen the scenes in the movie where someone likes to store a card in their sleeve So the thief's uh, pickpocket ability, which according to the rules, can be used for sleight of hand tricks, that would actually be very useful for them to pull out that ace just when they need it. Now, of course, you could also have a thief be an outlaw. Another possibility might be a train robber. Popular culture often depicts train robberies in the Old West much more dramatically than they actually were. You've probably seen movies or TV shows where the outlaws ride up to the train on their horses and jump onto the moving vehicle. Again, very fictional. Most train robberies involved the 
thieves simply boarding the train at the station with a concealed weapon and waiting for the opportunity to present itself. Usually the car in the train that they would want to focus on would be the express car. So this was one where it was not unusual for there to be a safe and there was a person there who knew the combination. Now again, breaking into the safe would be extremely difficult uh, because I don't think there were really commonly available tools back then that you could use to crack a combination safe. Of course, you could use dynamite, but that would be very dangerous and you would risk destroying the contents of the safe. So most of the time they would try to find the person who knew the combination and hold him at gunpoint so and force him to open the safe. And if that wasn't available, then they might just go to the passengers and demand that they use their, uh, you know, hand over their jewelry and any money that they had. Of course, robbing stagecoaches was another way a thief could make a living. You've probably heard of the term riding shotgun, and that actually comes from the uh, stagecoaches where whenever you had a stagecoach traveling in the Wild West, and if it was carrying valuable goods, the there would often be the person who was driving the coach and next to him would be a guy with a shotgun uh, to defend against any potential thieves and robbers and outlaws. Now for a bard, this class I think would work. And fortunately, they do not have to rely on the dangerous occupation that a thief would. From around 1870 to 1920, traveling Wild West shows were very popular events, as were traveling circuses. Both of these events would be a welcome relief from the constant hard work required on the frontier. Wild West shows featured trick shooting, rodeo events, and reenactments uh, that often presented highly fictionalized or romanticized versions of historical events. A bard might also find work as an actor in a local theater or a performer in a saloon. You'll probably want to severely limit a bard's magical abilities to spells and manipulate emotions. Now, I could see a bard subtly slipping a charm person spell into a song or making use of a spell like taunt. Or I know in 5th uh, edition, there's a bard ability called Vicious Mockery, where you essentially insult a person so badly they take damage. Uh, one of my friends, when we were playing a 5th edition campaign, he was a bard and he made liberal use of that ability. Some of the other bardic abilities, such as legend lore and influencing reactions, entirely appropriate. I wouldn't necessarily say their thieving abilities are inappropriate, but probably not going to get much use. Finally, the wizards. Now, usually wizards are hard to work into historical campaigns, especially if the game master does not want to give the player access to offensive magic like fireball or magic missile. However, I still think there is a way you could work a wizard into a Wild West campaign. Now, as mentioned before, traveling circuses and shows operated in the later part of the 1800s, especially after railroads became more common. 
Trains made it much easier to move large amounts of people and equipment across the country. So a wizard could certainly hook up with one of these traveling shows. A wizard with access to divination magic, or who has skill in using things like tarot cards, might work in one of these traveling shows as a fortune teller. Another type of traveling show was the medicine show. These shows featured a variety of forms of entertainment, including musical performances, magicians, and storytellers. But the highlight of the show was the mountebank. This is where I can see a wizard with skill in brewing, who also has a high charisma, really being able to shine. You've probably heard of the term snake oil salesman. That's what these guys were. The Montebank, which is based off the Italian word for charlatan, sold a variety of potions and elixirs. He claimed his products could cure just about everything. However, these elixirs rarely had any legitimate medical properties. Instead, they just contained large amounts of alcohol, opium, or cocaine. Certainly not a role an ethical wizard would take, but if a player has flexible morals, he just might make it in a medicine show. Well, next we move on to equipment. You're not really going to see a lot of different types of weapons in use in the Wild West. Generally, the main weapons you're going to see are daggers, knives, revolvers, rifles, and shotguns. Native Americans still made use of traditional weapons like bows and spears, though they were not opposed to using firearms when possible. Now to go back to the 2nd edition supplement, Mask of the Red Death, they did have rules for firearms. Now that supplement focuses on the 1890s, so it's at the tail end of the Old West period, but it should still give you an idea of how to stat out firearms for the day. And I also know the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guides has rules for some firearms as well. Generally, rifles and shotguns were preferred to handguns. The problem with revolvers is they didn't have as good of a range, so they were actually best in close-quarter combat. Probably one of the most well-known rifles of the time was the Winchester Model 1873. This is the famous gun that won the West. It was a popular firearm mainly because of its reliability. Because you have to remember that some of the firearms of the time, as well as some of the early firearms, were actually very finicky and were prone to failing. But the Model 1873 was considered very easy to use and very easy to fix in the field. It held about 15 shots, which certainly made it more effective than some of the older rifles that only had one shot at a time. Now, of course, the problem with these guns, you know, the revolvers and the the rifles that were able to hold more shots, is that once you got rid of all those shots, it would take a bit longer to load. Next, we get to armor. Armor use during this time was not common, but you could still use some types of armor. Now, Native Americans still may have used shields from time to time, but when you're talking about the, you know, the, the cavalry 
or cowboys or outlaws, generally they're not going to be wearing any armor. So to compensate, I would recommend giving players an AC bonus when unarmored. And this bonus would increase by plus one for every three or four levels the character gains. So this bonus primarily is for to give them a little bit more survivability, but I could see it representing a character's ability to get behind cover or being able to predict when an opponent is going to shoot or attack, which makes it a little easier for them to try to dodge an attack. Well, remember Dr. Goodfellow? He had actually proposed experimenting with silk as a way to protect against bullet wounds. He had noticed three cases involving shooting victims that when a bullet hit a thick enough layer of silk, the damage from the bullet was greatly reduced. Now, I wasn't able to find any information as to whether he actually made any silk armor or whether it came into common use, but I don't think there's anything wrong with incorporating it. Still, it would be very rare and very expensive. I would give it protection equal to about hide armor. There were even attempts to make better types of armor. I read about an outlaw named Jim Miller who would sometimes wear a coat that had a metal plate underneath it. Now this makeshift armor managed to save his life on at least two known occasions. So I could see incorporating this and I would make it equal to either chain mail or banded mail. There was also a gang called the Kelly Gang and they used metal body armor in the 1870s. This armor covered the head, torso, shoulders, and groin, and was worn over padded clothing. While the Kelly Gang operated in Australia, the technology that they used to make their armor would have been available in the later time period we associate with the Wild West. So I could see a Game Master allowing it, but again, it would be very rare and very expensive. I would give it the protective abilities of plate mail. Now, while this armor did protect against bullets entering the body, those wearing it could still suffer bruises and lacerations in places where they were hit. And I think one of the members of the gang actually suffered a concussion from being hit in the head. Because again, while it prevented the bullet from entering the body, it wasn't quite as effective as distributing the force of the blow. Now, because of the style of helmet, I would say if you were wearing it, it would give you a penalty to any sort of perception rolls. Also, because of the weight of the armor, it could penalize any dexterity-based skills at the game master's discretion. Now, if you're looking for a depiction of this type of armor in media, uh, the movie The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen did have people using a similar type of armor. Finally, monsters. Now, of course, your players are probably going to be spending a lot of time fighting outlaws. But I think we can draw upon folklore from the West and Native American legend for some other ideas. Now, of course, there were lots of ghost stories that people told back then, so you can certainly incorporate spectral undead. Since those spirits are usually immune to normal weapons, 
you will want to make sure you allow players some other way to harm them, such as silver bullets. Now, if you decide to make magic weapons extremely rare, this would make these types of enemies very formidable opponents. Another type of creature from Native American folklore is the Skunka Warakin, a creature whose name means carries off dogs. Basically, it's a dire wolf. In Arizona, there are legends of the Mogollon Monster. This creature is described as being similar to Bigfoot, about seven feet tall, and while they're sometimes shy, they could turn violent, attacking with their vicious claws. They also had a very strong scent, described as dead fish, a skunk with bad body odor, decaying peat moss, and the musk of a snapping turtle. So I would stat this creature out as a yeti with the ability to produce an effect similar to the stinking cloud spell. At the very least, those within melee range of the monster would be penalized from the, the horrible smell these creatures gave off. Another type of creature from Native American legend is the Thunderbird. Now, these creatures existed in the folklore of many Native American tribes. Details about this creature vary from area to area. Some stories claim that they are protectors of mankind who fight against evil spirits. Other tribes believed Thunderbirds were messengers of the Great Spirit. Still, other tribes saw them as beings that punished evil deeds. I would probably stat one out as either a rock or a phoenix, as there doesn't seem to be any uniform size for thunderbirds. You could also give them abilities related to various natural phenomenon, such as wind, lightning, and rain. Another type of creature that was known in the Wild West were Tommyknockers. I would stat them out as leprechauns. They look like tiny old men. Tommyknockers were said to inhabit mines. These creatures originated in England. However, the legend of the Tommyknockers followed Cornish and Welsh miners as they moved over to the U.S. Tommyknockers could be benevolent or mischievous. It all depends on how they were treated. They were said to steal unattended items. But if the miners were respectful, they would warn them of danger by knocking on the walls of the mine. One way you could earn the respect of a Tommyknocker was by leaving him food. I used to work at an earth science museum, and one of my co-workers there came from a line of miners who worked in the mines of Upper Michigan. A popular food among miners was the pasty. This is basically a pastry crust filled with meat potatoes, and vegetables. Now, since these miners didn't always have time to wash their hands, they would hold the pasty by one of the corners and eat the rest of it. The uneaten corner would then be left as an offering for the Tommyknockers. Finally, there is the Skinwalker, a type of witch from Navajo legend. Traditionally, the Navajo don't give out much information about these beings, especially to outsiders, so we don't have all of the details on skinwalkers. What is known about them is they are essentially medicine men or women gone bad. It was believed that a medicine man or woman 
would learn both good magic and bad magic. In a way, they remind me of the Grey Jedi of Star Wars lore, trying to find the balance between the light side of the Force and the dark side of the Force. However, not everyone can handle it, and those who are not able to find that balance might become skinwalkers. I would stat a skinwalker out as a werewolf. I would also give them the same immunity to normal weapons. So again, since magic weapons are likely to be rare in a Wild West campaign, this would make them extremely dangerous opponents. I would also give them access to some wizard spells or the reverse forms of some clerical spells, such as cause wounds instead of cure wounds. They were also said to be able to curse their opponents, so you could also give them the ability to use that spell a certain number of times a day. Well, there you have it. Some ideas for how to run a Dungeons & Dragons campaign in the days of the old American West. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, have a wonderful day and happy gaming. You have been listening to a production of the Eclectic Media Project. Please check us out on the web at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and on Podbean and iTunes. Find Scott and Chad on Twitter as well at EMP underscore Scott and at Chad EMP. We are on Facebook at Eclectic Media Project. Visit our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio and follow them on Twitter at POI Game Studio. Thank you, and we look forward to bringing you more thought provoking and enjoyable content. <laughs>